Welcome to Oregon Rooted. I'm Higher Peaks. And this is Lady Sativa. You're listening to The Dirt Show. Where we bring you Oregon's cannabis culture. And this is episode 23 of The Dirt Show, where we are the voice of Oregon's cannabis culture. All right. Right? All right. You like that? I love, yeah. That's (laughs) pretty hot. So (laughs) let's get right into it. We have Jason Wilson from Kennevere, as promised, from earlier in the week. Mm Mm-hmm. And we had a really good interview. So it was a little lengthy. It was like an hour and a half. Yeah. So we're going to keep this short (laughs) as far as the front end here. So uh, let's get some updates from you for the THC updates or latest sativa updates absolutely um cartridges and dabbables are in it's about time yes select strains are in if you want to see the menu go ahead and look on leafly.com or just go to your leafly app on your smartphone whatever you got gotta love leafly yeah exactly and it's it's great you can go uh put your favorite dispensaries in there you can make choose comments your favorite strains you can make comments do a review if you do reviews you do get a discount if you come in and nice you get a um how do you prove that to show them or well you have to act we do go look <laughs> yeah yeah um and then there are three new strains from shadow box also in yay and one of those is cookies and cream cookies and cream and white wow. cookies and and yeah blue dream Blue Dream. The OG. Real Blue Dream. Blue, blue, Hashtag blue, fuck Blue, blue dream. dream. Right. <laughs> That's what they all say. I like Blue Dream. Blue, blue, blue. See, I was doing the same thing. It's all good. I like Blue Dream. The only thing is, just overgrown by too many bad growers. But this is the original. This is. I know. We the saw it. Good stuff. It's yes. legit. And it is the same stuff. And it is. It smells delicious. Well, it's Shadow Box. You know. Yes. And we may have had a floor, you know. Uh, we may have had to try a nug or two of stuff that we have bought and passed around. And did you try the cookies and cream? I did not. No, oh. that's the only one I didn't get to try. The one that somebody nice. had gotten was they had just grabbed a gram of the um, of the Blue Dream. And they're like, hey, I had grabbed a gram of it for us all to share. And there was seriously a tiny nug left. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, look, yay, I get to try this little one. So, um, Yeah. But I, I got a flavor. Uh, it was like a teaser almost like it was just the tip <laughs> <laughs> so well um, we're gonna have to definitely try the cookies and cream because that was the one that we saw in the whole back one um i always forget the greenhouse yes yeah it was a full the greenhouse full of we gorgeous saw the gorilla glue number four was the next one wasn't it uh yeah yeah one full yeah. greenhouse of each oh. the gorilla glue was all laid over from the weight though. oh god they were so heavy <laughs> yeah so um and then what else did we get? The New Year's Eve show. Don't forget the New Year's Eve show. Okay, so let's talk about that just real quick. Remember, we've got the New Year's Eve evening. We're going to be down there because you got to work. Yes, I'm going to be there at 6 or after 6. Yeah, after 6 or so, I'll be there and we'll be setting up. And we're going to have 
At this point, I know of the four drawings. So we got a vaporous pin. We've got Peacemaker gear set. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, Captain Fogg's Terp. Oh my God. Terp, terp sauce. So good, guys. Yeah. So we've got a, and, and shout out to Captain Fogg. Mm-hmm. At Fog Flavors on uh, Instagram or Facebook. Those guys rock. Uh, they sent us um, some samples that we could uh, give away and try ourselves and whatnot. And so far, I like them. <laughs> the Golden Beaver stuff is awesome the Quite king's legit. cake smells so good it's sitting over on my desk right now so it's that's a yeah, sniffer it is we're gonna savor that before we even get into it but the the prize is for 10 one mil vials of each one is a different flavor of yes. terps terp yes. sauce now these are um 100 terpenes they are not no fillers no pgas i think they call them and pgs whatnot no gliss or nothing that so uh just straight you know terpenes which is what you want Yes, yes. And these are strain specific. So it's like OG Kush, uh, Granddaddy Purple, mm-hmm. uh, Sour D, Sour Diesel. Lemon Kush. Lemon Kush. Um, I don't remember. Uh, Durban Poison. Yeah, there's a All lot good of strains. Them. So, you know, I'm a, I would want to win this one. Right. I mean, yeah, and, and then you can flavor your concentrates or you can, <laughs> whatever you want to do. It's it's the, the, the terpenes. So. Yeah. it's And they're really cute bottles. Yeah. And so that'll be a prize. And then we're going to have a grower's pack of something like, you know, Mammoth P, SLF. Uh, a farm shirt like mm-hmm. we'll give away the jaybird shirt i've got a hat i got a great white hat we can give away so i mean and that's just to start we got a great white and an orca hat we can put exactly both of them in there. and if i feel frisky maybe i'll throw that dang water bottle in too remember <gasps> yeah. i forgot about it. i know we I've have been a water it. bottle i've been hiding it <laughs> so anyway yeah and You're so lucky i didn't get my hands on it yeah maybe we'll end up with more um drawings but you know, come out and all you got to do is just come get, you know, your tickets. Mm-hmm. And we just want you to follow us and like a certain social media. Basically, that's what we're going to do is just set up. If you want to enter for this prize to get that ticket to enter, you just got to like, say, Facebook and then like our podcast and follow. And boom, you get a ticket. Yeah. Easy. Kind of. Can you try and keep with us a little bit? <laughs> well, I mean, just listen. You don't yeah. have to like us, but you, you got to give like us a us, try. Give us a try. We're only <laughs> in your ear like once a week, sometimes twice, sometimes not. So if you choose to, even it's we yeah. don't force. We're not forceful. <laughs> no, and it's always free. We don't. We don't. You know, the only money you um, are going to spend is maybe if you want a pin, but yep. we don't. We yep. don't want any money. So exactly. Anyway, that's the that's what we know so far. We are going to have. Uh, I know I've got one interview that's going to be right now. That's with Sean from Rogue Farmers, nice, and he's nice. been growing for, you know, like twenty plus years, I believe, yeah. is what he said. Really cool guy, and I he's very him. smart. I'm going to talk to him about Grow Talk there because, um, oh, that reminds me. Don't let me forget about that grand prize. Um, right. Yeah. So, but Sean, we're going to talk about Grow Talk, and I'm going to try to suck out some advanced tips from this guy. Okay. Oh, he's, he's, None of the beginner stuff. Yeah. We're going to talk to him. We're going to try to drag out some serious, like, oh, I never thought of that. <laughs> okay. So that's my goal there. We are going to have, you know, I'm going to try to maybe bring in a breeder, you know, like a seed breeder and mm-hmm. then, well, not seed breeder, but a breeder that, you know, like seed. you take two of them, you put them together and let them do the naughty, oh. that type of breeding or like, okay. So, cannabis breeding. Okay. So, uh, and then, you know, we'll have um, someone else, a farmer or something in there. Yeah. So that'll be fun. Come down yeah. and enjoy the discounts that THC will have. 
it's one of your biggest nights of the year. Yeah. Enjoy so I'm sure it's going to be good stuff. Whatever yeah. we got going on, we've got, we'll have now, something good Now you're going to have more stuff. On. You can have more stuff besides just, you know, the cartridges. You can hopefully yeah, have. Yeah, well, we've got three more strains and we've got another one that came in right before I left that. I'm we, talking concentrates. I don't know. I don't know yet. Okay. We're just trying to see what are, we're trying to get our hands on some Willamette Valley I stuff. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and it is going to be a bit on the spendy side if we get it. But you know what? It's going to be worth it. It's going to be the flavors that are worth it. And so it's and it's going to be shatter and it's going to be, you know, dabs. So and it's going to be finally back on the shelf. So, yeah. But and it's Willamette Valley. Willamette Valley is basically the best of the best is what they're going for. Okay. They want to be known as top shelf type yeah, thing. Sure. So they are going to be a bit spendy at first and then mm-hmm. they're going to once people if people want them in higher demand i believe is what it is basically um they're putting out their specialty stuff first so okay. then they'll start dropping the prices as they yeah. start getting more strains available to them as well nice yeah so um i believe one of the strains may be shadow box included mm-hmm. um so We'll see. Ooh. We'll see. There's just rumors. Uh, it's just been emails and, you know, stuff just, here and there. Yeah. And hopefully, hopefully we can. And we know that Willamette Valley is not in very many places right yeah. now. Yeah. So seeing as they are also just getting their results in. So. Yeah. Well, good stuff. And it sounds yeah. like there's going to be just some surprises. Yes. We're be good seeing stuff. what's coming in. We're still getting stuff in. But like I said, we still have the cartridges. We still have the dabables, which it is the CBD dabables. Um. And hopefully we'll have the uh, we'll have some THC dabbles as well, um, and then also Beats Antiques. I don't know, I don't know if you've heard them yet, but Beats Antiques are going to be in town on December 29th concert. <laughs> and now, then, now explain what kind of music this is. Okay, it is. I just heard them, like, so I got to tell you, I just I got, I don't know. Like Middle Eastern kind of with horns, and it's actually pretty cool. It's, Middle Eastern with horns. Yes. So like trumpets and, and yeah, you'll you'll have to look it up. <laughs> Middle Eastern look fusion. It, look it up. <laughs> it's definitely an awesome. It, nice. I enjoy okay. it. But you know what type of music I like. I like. Yeah, I do. It's it's my style. It's yeah. very. It reminds me a lot of my mother. Aha. Uh-huh. It's zenny for me. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah. It's definitely. It and def- you know my mom. She does not listen to old school stuff she listens to her own style of yeah music (laughs) and it would seem like the music would go with uh a good indica yes (laughs) like some of that uh, purple alien yeah yeah grab your bong sit there on the floor indian style and listen to that all right beats antiques okay and then less than jake concert Oh, that's right. Thank you for mentioning. So, I, yeah. We can't forget that. And we I found out have... today, listen, though, I found out today that we uh, secured the interview. I have it right there. Okay. Oh. I read the email. <laughs> I was going to spill it. I forgot you can you see the same emails. You stole my thunder. <laughs> Yay, we get the interview. <laughs> I know. Woohoo. Uh, that'll be awesome. And, of course, you heard that we were backstage with, with Mongo Ranch. Uh, yeah, we love you, brother. Thanks, Joe. Yes, happy awesome. birthday too. Yes, happy birthday, and we're gonna be coming up here soon. I heard he turned seventy nine. <laughs> he looks damn good for seventy nine. <laughs> <laughs> no, we love you, Joe. Yeah, um, and we're gonna try and come up here very soon. We were talking about actually maybe this next week. Oh yeah, yeah. We're gonna go. We'll I have to finalize the interview stuff. So we have to go uh, over the questions. Blank stare that you just gave me. <laughs> 
because everything was going through my head of Way what I fast. need to do when we go there. <laughs> yeah, I have to go up there and figure out what questions we're going to do, Here the subjects. Go. go ahead and write it down right now while you're brainstorming. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, Joe wants to do this with me. Okay. Because he knows these guys. Yeah. And this and is going to be I'll a big visit. interview. I mean, I'll go visit with Ashley. And, you know, you do I, that. Bet, I bet these guys will smoke with us back there with this new strain, right? While doing the interview? Yes. Yeah. I'm going to go visit with the pigs and Ashley while you do that with Joe. Okay. Go on. <laughs> All right. So we got to move on. These these people want to hear this interview, I'm sure. So, yes, I'm sure. Yeah. So our supporters. Shout All right. Them. GetVaporous.com. Yep. For Vaporous, of course. 25% off with code word rooted at checkout. Yes. That's 25%. Uh, even if you don't win the prize. Exactly. These would make great gifts mm-hmm. for people. Um, for people that. You know, I don't know why people are so afraid of concentrates, especially in pens, because even if you're kind of not a heavy smoker, you can still, you know, just take a little, just little, 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 little drag. Yeah. And I, and actually I think a lot more people are coming around to it because yeah. a lot of people have been asking. It's convenient. Well, a lot of people have been asking about the pens that you can load stuff into. Yeah. I, quite a few. I mean, I've had, Hey, do you know where you can buy the pens that you can load stuff into them all? Yeah. It's coming soon to a yeah, THC I, near you. Yes. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, no, those pins will be in THC starting the first of the, the year. Sweet. So, and, you know, that way people locally that listen to us will be able to get these same pins. Right. And actually see them first if you want. But you still remember right now, 25% on the line with Oregon Rooted. Or yeah, excuse me, Rooted. Exactly. Rooted. Rooted. Rooted at checkout. Okay. And, and good, then. Like I said, good Christmas. All this good Christmas presents. Well, yeah. So. Yes. Very good Christmas presents. Um, and then the other is Ancient Herbs at ancientherbsinc.com, correct? Did you? No, that was ancientherbs.us. You want to you change that. You changed it to I know, me, and you did not tell me at my that, note. Okay, it's the so newest one. He's been working hard to get this newest one out. So Ancientherbs.us? Yeah. And okay. that's a, it's a really nice site. It's really professional and uh, a lot easier to maneuver with. And, Anyways, uh, that's fifteen percent off with code word organ rooted at checkout. Yeah, and remember that it's that's for form one and two for mm-hmm. IPM for pests. It's essential oils, but remember too, he's got more that he has on there. Mm-hmm. And I'm still using my soap, still on the yeah, first bar. I haven't I touched think. it for you. Exactly. I'm the only one that uses it in the house. Thank you. By force. Okay. I might... Otherwise, I might get in trouble. I hey, I told you you could use it. I just didn't want the kids slopping their hands all over it. Right. <laughs> All right. They have their good soap. Their good soap in the bathroom. (laughs) Yeah. And remember, Peacemaker Gear, that's going to be one of our giveaways. But, Mm -hmm. you know, we still support them. We still have them. We're using two of them now on and off. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it's just they're good pieces, too. So look for them. Instagram at Peacemaker Gear. Yep. So let me read this. I just got one story I want to go over real quick because shout out to Oregon as a state. We're doing well this year. We've hit 54 million in taxes. Nice. Or or 54 excuse me, $54,506,832. That is the data released by the state's Department of Revenue. Nice. So I just wanted to say good job. It shows that they're going to make a significant amount of money. They say in the article that it's going to just keep growing, Mm -hmm. of course. Interesting, it said that Washington State and Colorado got uh, around $300 million. (laughs) So congrats to you guys. You guys have blown us out of the water. <laughs> but come on. They've been out in the game for an for, extra year yes, or two. Yes. And, you know, admittedly, Colorado hit it first. So they, you know, had a lot of people show up. Mm-hmm. So good job, Oregon. And, you know, hell yeah, that's 54 million we wouldn't have 
you know, and it's just, you know, millions and millions and millions a month. So that's just going to grow. So that's all I had. It, I didn't really want to read the article. I just wanted to, you know, shout out to the state. So you psyched us out. You made us think it was going to be an article and it was only just like a couple words. Yeah. Well, I mean, everybody's probably mostly read it, but I just want to shout out to it. So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We must do. Yeah. So the interview this, uh, with Jason Wilson, we talked about one, what to expect. Cause we had changes October 1st, right? Or as he says it, October 1. October. <laughs> Thank you. That's October 1. October 1. And then we flip-flopped and made a change December 2nd. And then we flip-flopped and made a change December 15th. Okay. So <laughs> everybody is getting a little uptight. People are trying to get product to the shelves for patients and rec users, and it's not happening. But all you due felt respect, people have respect for the people that are also having to deal with it because he is also having yeah. to deal with the same thing. So yeah. it's he doesn't always get first, you know, first here of everything. They, yeah. And that's the thing is you got to understand that the state is not communicating well with all these people, whether it's growers, uh, whether it's labs, any of that. There's not a good communication um, thing going on. And we point this out. We point out that, you know, it's hard. It's hard. And it, the lab should be your ally. Yes. So what? Don't what make we, him your enemy. Yeah. What we talk about is how you can do that. The ways you can work with your labs, your trusted labs, how to work with them so that it's the best outcome for you. And they don't enjoy doing this to you. No. Well, they. They're, this is what they this have is the to result. do. This is the result. Yeah. Yes. This is what they by law have to do too. So, so even though it's cut uh, them some slack. Yeah. Even though it's. <laughs> A kind of, we'll call it a dark gray area or maybe mm -hmm. a, a light. I don't know. We don't know what shade of gray, but it is in the gray section. Yeah. Color. So the point <laughs> is that they're going to work with you to try to get your product through in a timely manner and in a way that it still is legitimate. And so, try to make you pass. You yeah. Know, and then and then we they go. They don't want to see anybody fail. Is no. What they, no. They all say they don't want to see way, you fail. Yeah. And there's processes and ways that you can deal with this time issue. Mm -hmm. We talk all about that. Yeah. The other thing we talk about is pesticides. We've done a lot of talking about pesticides, but this talk was really informative. He has some tips and some points that are just really valuable. Um, so the middle part of the interview was all the pesticides. I encourage you to listen to that section. Mm -hmm. Lots of good. He talked about the different kinds of pesticides, where, where you can find them on the plant, like mm -hmm. pesticides that hide underneath the leaves about you know trimming and the importance of it and why i mean all this good stuff so um i think we need to get to it yep yeah all right so we are not going to do an outro because this is a good hour and a half good talk so enjoy yeah we appreciate you guys we appreciate the listeners um this will be the last one this week but we'll catch you next week and remember the talent health club new year's eve yeah do we have a name for it yet the, the event the event no it's the new year's eve, the new year's eve Party? live event there we go yeah. all right Woo. all right with refreshments because personally requested by one of my coworkers. all right like, can we bring refreshments <laughs> <laughs> all right so we will talk to you next week all right our organ, organ love. love all right welcome back jason thank you um now we talked to you at the first part of october about some regulation changes uh, that that happened and uh, we're back to talk to you more about that 
And now we talk to you a handful of times now. So we appreciate you doing this. And yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me back. I always enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we enjoy the um, sharing of information. I think that you're about as credible sources as we can get. So <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's let's talk about the current situation of the cannabis testing regulations. Um, can you tell us or share with us what has changed? Because I know that we have just made another change with December 2nd. Yeah. Um, so the last time that we got together, I guess, was just prior to October 1. Um, so there were a set of testing rules that changed over on October 1. And then, yeah, like you mentioned, there were another set of changes that came through on uh, December uh, 2nd or 3rd. Um, compared to pre-October 1, uh, quite a lot has changed. Um, some of the major changes um, relate to things like um, now instead of a sort of ambiguous, broad uh, set of four classes of pesticides that were required for testing, um, now the state has a list of approximately 60 pesticides that um, all labs are required to test for. Um, so that's one big change, um, and we can talk a little more about that later because there's a lot that goes into that. But sure. there are things on that pesticide list um, that include things like organic pesticides, army listed stuff, and so that's been uh, new for cultivators to you know sort of get used to. Um, on top of that, there's also now a requirement for testing uh, cannabis flowers for something that's called water activity. Mm-hmm which is a measurement of um, ultimately the mobility of water in a sample. And on a practical sense, you can think of it as relative humidity. It's a measurement of the moisture in the air around a sample. And um, the reason we're testing for that now, at least around the the sample. Yeah, around the sample. So not in the sample. So moisture content would be a measurement of the moisture within a sample that makes it up. This is a measure of the humidity of the air around the sample. And the reason that's important is um, because the relative humidity of the air around a sample indicates the likelihood that moisture within the sample would become available to things like uh, fungi or bacteria, things like that, that might try to grow out while in storage. Um, So it's sort of an indicator of how likely the product might um, spoil while in storage. You can sort of think of it that way. Um, It's definitely a unique test um, that a lot of folks are unfamiliar with. Um, It's a relatively simple test, and for the most part, uh, the way I explain it to people, if the product passes the uh, the sort of classic stem test, um, you know, if the stem uh, breaks cleanly and doesn't string out or, or tear or bend, um, then it'll probably be fine on the water activity um, test. Right. But um, that's been a new thing. So the new state limit for water activity, water activities, um, uh, the results are given as like zero point something something. So mm-hmm. if a sample was uh, 65% uh, had a measurement of 65% relative humidity, the water activity would be at 0.65. Okay. Um, and so that uh, 0.65 is actually the state limit for water activity. And so if we collect samples, um, you know, flower samples that test at or above 0.65 AW, then um, they're deemed to fail. Um, the producer doesn't have to, like, destroy the batch or anything. All they have to do is um, let the product dry longer and then submit it for testing again. 
Um, so it's not a like make or break test by I any see. means like pesticides can be. Yeah. Um, on top of that, um, another sort of, uh, can, can I ask one question about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, so is that, does that replace mold or mildew testing? Um, there's a rationale that was given out by the state for why they chose the testing rules that they did, and that's available on uh, OHA's website. But uh, the rationale given is that, um, in a sense, yes, um, the thought is that if you can indicate the likelihood that something will spoil in storage, then there shouldn't be much need for you know, a, a mold test, arguably. Um, the issue with that, water activity is good for indicating future spoilage. Right. It doesn't tell you much about current spoilage. Sure. Um, so it's just a little nuance there. And we do have folks that are still ordering mold tests because, you know, they may have gotten the product dry, but they still want to know, you know, but is it moldy? Yeah. Well, <laughs> let me try to be clear for the listeners is so it's not required to get a specific mold test other than that particular one no yeah there is no requirement for mold and technically there's really not a hard requirement for any microbiological testing of cannabis in oregon now and there really hasn't been since march of this year um in march a new set of uh, rules came out that had all of the mold testing um, stuff uh, struck from the language of the Oregon administrative rule. But um, yeah, mold's not required. There is a provision in the current Oregon administrative rule, 333-007, which provides all the guidance for testing, uh, that says that if the health authority or the OLCC decided to do audit testing for E. coli, that they could exercise that right and choose certain batches um, and send them to certain labs to have them uh, tested for that microbiological um, component. But it's not required for every batch. It's not required for commerce. And I think um, more than anything that's held is, you know, if someone consumes a product and gets sick, you know, they want to have that provision there that they can then go through and make sure that the batches aren't laden with E. coli. Right. That sort of thing. Sure, sure. Man, that's crazy. It's it's amazing what um, what what changes come so quick on that. <laughs> the whole like was it October December? So approximately a month, right? Yeah, and we haven't even um, gotten into the changes that occurred in December. Um, right. And so so all of those changes occurred on October one. Um, there are more changes related to labeling and reporting and all of that. But as far as just um, testing, you know, those are some of the basic changes. Is that for flower producers, they've got to get uh, water activity, um, moisture content as well, um, which moisture content is, isn't necessarily new in the sense that a lot of labs have had to calculate that in order to do basic potency work um, because typically uh, potency results are corrected um, to reflect dry weight. And so you have to either desiccate the sample completely before analyzing it, or you have to measure the moisture content of the sample and then correct the results afterwards to, to figure out the dry weight result. Um, but now uh, clients are specifically getting that data um, explicitly, moisture content, um, and then the, the pesticides and, and potency, of course. Um, and there have been some little changes to you know, what testing is required if you're transferring to you know, an extractor or a wholesaler, that sort of thing. Um, 
Um, another big change that came along in October 1 was something called a process validation was introduced, which was meant to address concerns that the state had about the homogeneity of extracts, concentrates, and infused products. Um, and so homogeneity, for anyone that's unfamiliar with that term, it just refers to how uniform in composition something is. You know, So for instance, um, a practical example from the state's perspective is, you know, if there are pesticides in an extract, um, are those pesticides evenly distributed throughout the batch? Or is, or is there a chance that there'll be pesticides in one part of the batch and not in others, that sort of thing. And that mentality led to specific rules that were generated that have very um, very big effects for extractors. Um, okay. Because um, along with the testing rules that changed, there are also changes to the way labs have to sample products and to deal with the state's concern about the homogeneity of products they um, have now given labs guidance that we have to uh, perform what's called incremental sampling and so depending on the size of a batch we have to take a certain number of increments of a certain mass range you know um, and on, in October it was defined as a gram um, now that's been more loosely defined but generally between a half gram to a gram or so, these increments. And so I believe, I don't have it in front of me, but I believe a half pound batch of oil, we would have to take four increments. And if the client hasn't hadn't um, received a process validation waiver from the state, then we would have to test each of those increments separately. So that would equate to doing anywhere between four sets of tests on a batch all the way up to, in some cases, 20 or more tests for one batch, um, which, as you can imagine, makes the price of testing extraordinarily high. Um, so is this a way to, to encourage this or, I mean, well, you know, encourage the process? It's from the state's perspective, um, it's a way of ensuring that any product that makes it to market is relatively homogeneous and that there's data backing that up. Gotcha. And the process validations are a series of studies that you could go through um, in order to achieve this waiver from the state, which would then allow us to, rather than testing each increment that we take sure. separately, we could combine them all together into yeah. a, a primary sample and you know basically get back to business as usual. Um, with the exception of, at a minimum, they want us to test um, uh, a primary sample and what's called a field duplicate and run statistics on those to ensure that there's ongoing homogeneity. Um, and so there are a lot of nuances now to the testing rules, and there are more ways to quote-unquote fail. Um, and As of December 2nd? As of October 1. I see. Um, and somewhat in December 2nd stuff too, but um, as of October 1, it's... Um, it's a little easier to fail. You can actually, for extracts, concentrates, and infused products, you can actually fail for potency, which is new. Um, and so... Um, How do it, you fail for potency, if it, you mind me asking? <laughs> yeah, it's um, a couple things. So there are concentration limits for okay. products. And so if the potency is greater than the concentration limit allowed for sale, then it fails. Um, but also if, um, upon duplicate measurements... Um, the precision or the re reproducibility 
of a test isn't good enough, meaning that like your THC value in one run was 70%, your THC value in another was 50%, that's too different. And so it indicates the batch may not be homogeneous. Um, and so you can fail for something like that as well. Um, so that's been very new. Um, December 2nd, um, another set of rules came out. These are temporary rules that last until uh, the end of May of next year. And um, <clears throat> from what I understand, these uh, temporary rules were a way of trying to, um, to try to provide some relief for smaller producers and, and growers. And um, part of that was changing the process validation. And now they've, they've actually struck that whole term. Now they call it a control study. And um, after October 1, before December 2nd, to get a process validation waiver, you'd have to do three sets of these studies um, over three different batches. And each study would require 20 tests per uh, thing that you're testing for. So for extracts and concentrates, it was required that to get a process validation waiver, you'd have to test for both pesticides and solvents, which would have equated to 40 samples being taken from three different batches each. So yeah. it's 120 samples. Wow. Um, uh, it it got a little a little intense and very, very, very expensive for anyone to actually complete. And even then, even if you could complete it, there's no guarantee that you would pass. And even if you passed, they were very easy to lose. Um, you could invalidate your process validation um, fairly easily just by tweaking uh, the ingredients in your product. You know, if you decided you wanted to add terpenes to your extracts, um, well, that technically would have invalidated um, a process validation. Uh, so now they've replaced process validations with control studies. It's just one set of, of tests. It's still 20 samples. And so for extractor, extractors, um, you know, they would still have to go through, you know, getting a batch sampled for 20 pesticide tests and 20 solvent tests. Um, but you only have to do that one time rather than three consecutive times. And um, we run all of that. We do all these statistics on the results. And if everything comes back fine, you um, not only submit those test results to the state, but an important component of the control study and the, the process validation is that you also have to submit to the state um, your standard operating procedures and ingredient lists um, because these waivers are specific not just to a product but a process and the state wants to understand that you know you have a documented process on file that you're training folks to and that's repeatable um, and measurable um, so it's not just about going through the tests on the lab side but also this internal work that um, cannabis businesses have to do of making sure that they do have all of the stuff documented in a way that makes sense and that they can send off to the state and get approved. Yeah. Um, and um, so that's sort of one look at, at what's changed. The process validation thing was a big part because um, uh, testing has gotten so um, expensive for extractors mm -hmm. and infused product producers um, because of the incremental sampling that we have to do and all of that. So it's now a little easier to get one of these waivers. Uh, the trade-off is the waivers don't last as long. Process validation waivers were going to last two years. Control mm -hmm. study waivers last one year. Okay. 
Um, but they did also make a provision for control studies that um, there is some wiggle room on changing flavors and colors of products without invalidating the, the waiver. Um, I can't really say too much more about that because we're still trying to get clarification from the OHA and OLCC on exactly what they intend by these changes and how we can ensure that you know the labs are providing the services intended by these rule changes and that we're upholding everything that we need to uphold for our accreditations and through traceable paperwork and, and all of that kind of thing. Um, but that's sort of a, a broad overview of, of some of the big changes. Um, on top of that, December 2nd, they struck um, a few solvents from the residual solvent list, including um, butanol, propanol, and ethanol. Ethanol was a big one um, because... Uh, a lot of the uh, vape pens, the CO2 oil vape pens, have a little bit of ethanol in them to make them uh, runny so that they can wick. Um, and uh, so uh, producers were having, some producers are having a little bit of trouble um, meeting the ethanol limits, yeah. uh, for one thing. I don't know if that's why they were struck or not, but that was an issue that folks were dealing with, and they were spending a lot of money on testing to find out that, you know, they were failing for ethanol. Um so that's been struck. Um, so now it'll be a little easier for uh, folks that are making CO2 oils for vape pens and things like that to get their products to market because they won't be facing that, that hurdle with ethanol. Um, um, and then there were some other little small changes like um, dispensaries now when they um, display potency results, um, they're now supposed to display them as plus or minus 5%, um, which is a... a pretty interesting change and there are some nuances to that because that doesn't mean that if you're looking at a test result that says 16% plus or minus 5% that doesn't mean that it's 16% but it could be you know 21% or or it could be 11% yeah. it just it doesn't mean percentage points it means you know an actual percentage so uh, whatever, I don't know off the top of my head what 5% of 16 right. is, but right. you know, that's, that's how to I think gotcha. of that. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. Um, but I, I, on a personal level, I'm a fan of that because that's a more honest way to represent the work the labs are doing. Mm -hmm. You know, there are no true potency values <laughs> for, yeah. for a cannabis flower. It's a yeah. totally, you know, heterogeneous mm -hmm. thing. Um, and among that, like we've talked about on here before, yeah. cannabis has that phytochemical polymorphism. Yeah. Um, and so I, I like that they're trying to get towards this idea of ranges rather than specific values. Sure. Because uh, that's, that's a much more honest way of, of representing it. A little it. tolerance, yeah. if you will. Yeah. And um, what the state realized was uh, for the purposes of failing potency, um, you know, folks were getting into... Um, really awkward situations where their potencies were just barely over the concentration limit, you know, by a milligram per gram uh, or something. And, um, and so this, the state wanted to give them a little wiggle room of like, yeah. okay, like we recognize it's hard to hit exactly, you know, that if your target is the uppermost limit of the concentration limits, you know, that's going to be very hard to hit batch to batch. Yeah. Um, but if you've got a little bit, you know, five, percent plus or minus on either side then it um it gives producers a much more reasonable um target to work with and they don't have to worry about oh well, what if the lab result comes back and it's barely over yeah it's okay yeah sure, sure um so yeah that's sort of a broad view there are other changes i encourage folks to um 
look up the temporary rules. They're on the OHA's um, website where they have all of the cannabis rules. Um, you'll find the um, the the temporary text as well as um, some new appendices. So the new solvent list. Um, there's a PDF for that there, and then there's uh, one other change is um, infused product batches have now been capped at a, at a thousand units. Um, and so there's a little appendix to the new rules too that you can look up where you can see the um, the allowable batch sizes as well as the number of increments that labs are required to sample from based on the batch sizes. Mm-hmm. And so you'll see um, that change reflected there too that now um, infused products it stops at a thousand units, whereas before it went all the way to like five thousand or more. So, so. sure, sure, yeah. sure. Um, now I wanted to ask you too. I've had some farms. Um, you know, talk to me or ask me about uh, the changes in pesticides. Yeah. And you had mentioned that we were going to, you know, talk about that a little bit later. Um, I know, I think you had mentioned that uh, there was some OMRI listed products that are popping up for testing. Yeah. And which is confusing some farms or at least, you know. Yeah. I mean, one of the big things is that, you know, like I mentioned before, pre-October 1, labs um, for better or worse, we're able to, at their discretion, choose what pesticides they're testing for. And their only rule was that as they just, all in all, you've got to hit these four really broad classes of pesticides. And so, unfortunately, um, producers have not been getting very appropriate feedback from their previous testing to understand how their current um cultivation and uh, pesticide application regimens would affect them this harvest season um, because so many things have not been tested for by a lot of labs. And um, so some things that we're seeing that um, are popping up um, that folks have been sort of surprised by are things like um, spinazad, spinazad. That's pretty Um, common, isn't it? Very common, yeah. Um, So that's definitely being tested for now as well as uh, like mycobutanil, which is a fungicide. Yeah. Um, it did, neither one of those compounds fell into one of the four classes that were described by the previous rule. Um, and so the only way that you would typically test for those things is if, um, you know, before October one here at Kinevere, we had, you know, extended pesticide panels that folks could opt for if they wanted to look for those things. Um, and then some other labs, um, did start to put some of those into their common panels, but generally it was pretty hard to to find a typical um, cannabis lab that would, you know, test for all of those sorts of things. And um, one thing I, I like about that for consumers is that now when they're buying things um, in a shop, the fact that something has passed testing, it actually means something now. Like they know what it means. They know that, okay, it was tested for this list of 59 pesticides and definitely, you know, X amount of pesticide concentration is not there. Um, whereas before you were kind of like, well, it was tested for pesticides. I don't know what pesticides it was tested for or, you know. Um, so it's nice that consumers now have, um, whether they, I don't know, even know if they realized all of these changes. Most of them just assume that, oh, it's tested for pesticides. It's clean. Yeah. But like now, you know, saying something was tested for pesticides, it has some universal meaning in Oregon, okay. and it gives us a frame of reference to and a foundation to work from. Um, so, yeah, but we're seeing some of these OMRI-listed things like Spinazad popping up, some other things that are on the list now that um, folks may not be um, 
watching out for are pyrethrins. So not pyrethroids, which are synthetic um, versions of um, pyrethrin compounds, but pyrethrins themselves are, um, they're actually like terpenes that are extracted from chrysanthemum flowers and and used really commonly in organic, um, as an organic pesticide, uh, pyrethrum. Yeah has pyrethrins one and two in it okay sometimes other pyrethrins too and um so we're having to test for that now um now just to be clear on that so they're testing not for the synthetic form but no, they they're are... they're testing for some of the synthetics as well okay. it's just now okay. they're also testing for the natural right. pyrethrins yeah. quote unquote yeah um now do you think this is because of the lack of of research or evidence or anything yes. on that? Okay. I do. Um, and the state has even said that every year or two, they're going to be reviewing uh, the test results and sort of um, some of the patterns of what's being detected and that they may start shaving off certain things over time as we learn more. Yeah. Um, it seems like Oregon has taken a... Um, very much a precautionary approach. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're like, we don't know much. Um, and what we do know really doesn't help us very much. So let's try to take a firm stance on things now and then loosen up rather than taking a loose stance now and having to tighten up going forward, realizing that we've affected, you know, a lot of people in the process. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, I have definitely have some respect, you know, for that approach. And that comes largely from watching Washington and Colorado uh, go through some of this and learn um, that, oh, there are actually more pesticides on cannabis products than we maybe thought um, mm-hmm. before. And um, so they're just trying to kind of nip it in the bud uh, that way. But um, yeah, just because it's organic doesn't mean it's right um, necessarily healthy, especially because you're you know, combusting it or well, or and that's the big changing it that's, chemically. That's exactly the big thing. Um, a lot of arguments that I hear, you know, well, pesticides are applied to food, and you know, we're consuming pesticides in our food. So, what's the difference? And um, you know, there are quite a few differences, um, but one of the big ones is exactly that. Well, when you're heating something and mm-hmm. inhaling it, there are yeah. multiple things going on. One. The heat itself is transforming whatever chemistry is present in what you're smoking. Right. Um, and two, when you're inhaling it, uh, those compounds are going directly into your bloodstream and being distributed throughout your body and into your brain. And very quickly. Um, very quickly. In, in relation to the gut, you know. Right. Whereas if when you're eating things, your liver has a chance to step in and take care of you know toxins and things like that. Sure. And your liver typically takes the hit when you're consuming right. toxic things, but. Yeah. When you're inhaling them, there's there's no protection, <laughs> so to <laughs> yeah, speak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so there are a lot of big unknowns, and as you can imagine, there are a lot of people that have recognized this problem and are uh, all over the world are working towards trying to generate some data to figure out whether or not we should be worried about these these things or not. And you know, from my perspective, um, I'm not a toxicologist, and a lot of people um, now ask us, you know, what's safe to use, what's not. And, you know, there's no way I can answer that. Right. Um, I'm not sure. Well, I mean, so are the things that are left on the OK list, are, are those things that have been well-researched or do you know? Uh, I mean, what's is what's are, the theory about what's left? So 
Um, that makes me think of a couple things. Sure, one, go ahead. Go ahead. One is that um, you mentioned things on the list that are okay to use. So the Oregon Department of Agriculture has a list of pesticides that are deemed um, not necessarily okay to use, but legal to use. Um, and if you use anything outside of that list, then you're using something illegally. Okay. Um, but um, just because something is on that ODA list doesn't mean that we're not testing for it. And so that's a big issue that I want to make sure people understand um, because there, um, from my experience, there has been a, a large misunderstanding between that ODA list of what's quote-unquote okay to apply versus the list of what we're testing for. And a lot of folks have assumed that if the ODAs approved it for use, then they should be fine and shouldn't have to worry about their test results. And then they end up failing and um, um, and they have to go back and, and figure out what, what went wrong and, and why. And so, you know, just because it's on the ODA list doesn't mean it's okay um, necessarily to apply anytime you want by any means. Um, and, you know, ultimately, and we've talked about this on the show before, but me personally, you know, I, I think the the goal should be to minimize or eliminate pesticide use yeah. um, through integrated pest management plans, right? Um, rather than trying to figure out what's okay to use when you can use it to sort of build up this sort of like weapon arsenal, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, you know that takes a lot of effort. It does. It takes a lot That's, of effort. It's a huge yeah. adjustment, and it it takes a huge shift in your entire perspective of what right. you're doing. Um, yeah, because you got to hit it from the beginning with that plan, and and carry that through because you've got to prevent all that from absolutely. even even coming. <laughs> absolutely, and um, you know it's no yeah it's no small feat. Um, that being said, you know there are examples of producers that have been able to pull this off sure. even on fairly large scales. Absolutely, um, and a lot of it comes down to you know. Um, watching what inputs you're giving plants, uh, tending to the soil, and tending to the surrounding biodiversity of the cultivation site so that the ecology itself can manage itself. And like I said, there's a change in perspective. You assume you're going to lose some. Right, And you don't worry about that as much. Exactly, yeah. And you try to, um, you don't worry so much about saving poor genetics. Correct. If something is getting attacked by something, um, you know, may not necessarily be a bad thing to let those genetics die off. Right. Um, but, you know, that being well, that's, said... that's good points, though. That's, yeah, that being said, I totally understand why, you know, folks have to use pesticides. Absolutely. And, um, I don't exude judgment either way. Um, well, even but, with pesticides, if you don't have some sort of IPM from the beginning... That's when things get out of hand. Yeah. And then you have to go to the Nukem strategies, which is no good. Right. And, you know, ultimately, if you're employing good integrated pest management plans, um, it's, it's not just from an environmental perspective or, or anything like that. But, I mean, ultimately, you end up saving money. Yeah. Um, and so there's a bottom line to it in that regard, too, um, that you have to keep in mind. If you're losing, if you're using less chemicals, you're spending less money right. on pest control. And, Absolutely. Um you might be spending more in um, energy resources, like you know, just physically having to go out and tend to plants and keep an eye on things a little more. Um, I will but, say, not to interrupt, but I no, will say it. that the farms that we've interviewed and the farms that we've seen so far are geared towards no pesticides, if at all possible, yeah. in general. And 
I've seen them, um, you know, not use pesticides. So I think the Oregon farms are pretty geared to I, at least try to do that. I, I agree. I've been really, um, really pleased with the general uh, culture of growers in Oregon. Um, there's a there's a huge um, desire to try to do things um, in a manner that's consistent with, you know, what their ultimate um, deeper goals are. And a lot of time that starts out as organic gardening, and then it usually takes another step and another step and another step mm-hmm. um, towards the sustainable and regenerative right. um, cultivation practices as they learn more. And um, so that's been very, very encouraging. I'm, I'm interested as, as our company, you know, continues to expand into California and everything, I'm interested to see what, um, what I experience there and what feedback I get and compare and contrast, um, some of the cultivation cultures, um, between these different States. Um, so you'd be doing a little work down there maybe? Um, yeah, I plan on spending, spending some significant time uh, in California. Um, are you going to (laughs) move? No, I, I have no intention of ever leaving Southern Oregon. Nice. It's too perfect here. Yeah. Good. Good. (laughs) We wouldn't want to lose you to California, (laughs) but let's not tell anybody how perfect Southern Oregon is. Oh, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Otherwise they'll all move here. Like I did. Um, (laughs) yeah. And you weren't from California. Nope. Uh, All the way in the Southeast. Right. right, Um, But, um, yeah, so, so some of these things that we're seeing folks, uh, fail pesticide tests for now. So I mentioned, um, Spinazad, mm-hmm. um, and Mycobutanil. Those are the two big ones. And then a lot of the usual things, um, imidacloprid, bifenazate, bifenthrin, um, carbaryl, carbaryl's in, uh, a product called seven. Right. S-E-V-I-N. I don't know about um, that stuff anyway. Yeah, and a lot of these things, you know, admittedly, like I said before, I'm not a toxicologist. I know what I'm able to find in peer-reviewed literature, you know, about this stuff, but I don't honestly even myself know what to make sense of, you know, at what point is this stuff dangerous to come into contact with? I have no idea. Um, But... I think one thing is that the off-label stuff that we went through at first was a little scary. Yes, and so that's you know, what the ODA is trying to um, curtail is off-label um, pesticide use. And that's why they have a list of approved things is because these are the things that they know of that have active ingredients listed that shouldn't have unlisted ingredients. Um, that's not to say they don't. Um, it's always possible until it's found, till a bunch of growers start failing for something that doesn't make any sense. And then, you know, that's how... Um, like Mighty Wash, um, some of these other products that um, they were discovered to have um, Mm off-label pesticides. And it was because growers were all of a sudden failing for things. And they were like, what's going on? I haven't been using anything. I've checked the active ingredients of what I've been using. And then um, through lab data and everything, I realized like, oh, the commonality is you were all using this product. Yeah. Well, Guardian was a big one. And Guardian. Guardian was huge. and then thankfully I never got my hands on it, although I wanted it up until the point I heard the news and I thought, Oh my gosh. It's like, that's why it's so effective. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that's the thing is there's no real magic, you know, great cure for these, these pests. And if there is, it makes you wonder a little bit like right. that. Yeah. You know? Um, so what I, you know, what I've turned to, uh, when I'm talking to folks about this subject is, you know, n- nobody can tell you 
what's good for you on you know what is okay to use or not and ultimately you've got to do your own due diligence to figure out a little bit about what you're considering using and trying to ultimately make as an informed decision as you possibly can and um and so with that what i point out to people are there primarily three main things about pesticides you should try to learn before you use it um, and this information is generally readily available online. You just have to know how to find it. Um, and so first is the uh, pesticide's level of mobility, okay. which is just um, typically that's um, a measurement of how soluble in water a pesticide is because if it's soluble in water, then with rains or irrigation and things like that, it'll get carried away from the site of application. Um, and so you want to find out if a pesticide is highly mobile or not. Um, so that you have some idea of whether or not it's going to stay at the site of application or if it's going to end up potentially causing what's called non-point pollution, where it's going to run off into water supplies and contribute to sort of bigger picture um, pollution problems, which we definitely don't want. Um, on top of mobility, you also want to look at what's called persistence. So not only, you know, how likely is it to move away from the site of application, but how long does it take to degrade? And um, there are some nuances that go into persistence because the sort of question mark in available information right now is if something is not persistent or is touted to not be persistent, meaning it degrades quickly, does it actually degrade into non-toxic components or not? Because um, there's the possibility that just because a compound degrades quickly, that doesn't mean it degrades into something you want to consume. Um, and you have to kind of figure out what does it degrade into and what's the persistence of that product? You know, is it going to degrade into something that's potentially toxic that then is going to linger for a really long time? Um, that doesn't get talked about as much as just the general concept of pesticide persistence does. And that takes a bit of deeper research to try to understand, um, you know, how these compounds interact with, you know, light, heat, water, oxygen. Um, but, you know, mobility, persistence, you know, try to figure that out. Generally, you want pesticides that are low in persistence and low in mobility. You don't want them to go anywhere and you want them to break down quickly. Um, but another big part, um, not all pesticides act the same. And the way that a pesticide acts um, can influence how long that pesticide is going to linger around and how... Um, that pesticide application might affect test results specifically in the context of what we're discussing. Um, and so what I, you know, try to point out to people, I actually just wrote up a little article about this recently that I'll be um, posting online nice. soon, probably nice. short, shortly after this, because it'll go oh, well with this talk. But, sure. um, you know, there are uh, what are called contact pesticides, which is what we're generally used to, you know, think about a wasp spray, yeah. you know, it's got to contact the pest in order to kill it. Right. Contact pesticide. Most traditional pesticides acted this way. Um, you sprayed a plant and then a pest had to actually encounter, you know, that application on the plant in order to die. And that's why you had to make sure to apply really thoroughly and get under the leaves and over the leaves and all throughout because if you didn't um, if you didn't spray it well enough and it didn't make contact with all parts of the plant then you may not actually you know do much to the pest population right um, but on top of that there are also which um, seems like a lot of people are familiar with are what are called systemic pesticides 
Systemic pesticides are, you know, just like it sounds, they get into the plant, they get recirculated through the plant's vascular system. Um, you know, it would be like injecting our, our blood yeah. with pesticides or something. Um, I would assume that's not the best choice. N- um, well, for... I mean, because if it's systemic, it seems like it would stay in there maybe potentially longer. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you're exactly right. Um, systemic pesticides, they get recycled. Um, there are different nuances to it in the sense that, um, you know, plant tissues tend to have slightly less concentrations at any given time because it's it's a slow process this systemic distribution and you know as you can imagine you would get really high concentrations of pesticides on a leaf that you directly spray with pesticides but concentrations would be less if you're relying on it to circulate but that being said you're exactly right that it's going to recirculate it's going to linger longer and it's going to essentially be a um a very uh literally ingrained part of yeah, the plant. It right. is, becomes part of the plant for as long as it, it lasts. And some of these systemic pesticides can ha- um, last for months and months and months after application, yeah. sometimes even longer. Yeah. Um, and, well, and it's not getting any light in general, right? I mean, right. really? It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's in the inside. Plant, so it's not getting any kind of photosynthesis breakdown. Right. It's relying on basic whatever, metabolic processes yeah. from the plant yeah. um, in order to break down, as well as just natural half-life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, there's another category that folks, I never hear anybody talk about, which I find really interesting because it affects some of the common pesticides that folks use, and that's translaminar pesticides. And these are pesticides that are designed to penetrate leaf tissues um, and then form a reservoir of pesticides underneath the leaf tissue that sit there for quite a while Wow! so that when... Insects um, <clears throat> penetrate the leaf tissue, whether they're trying to, you know, get at juices in the plant or whatever right. they're feeding on it. Once they hit that little reservoir of pesticides, then they die off. And um, the reason translaminar pesticides are are interesting is because they can um, a lot of times form higher concentrations in a specific area than systemic pesticides, and they don't wash off like contact pesticides do because they actually penetrate um, and get deep into the tissues. And so um, some examples... I was going to say, do you have an example of something that is in that category? Yeah, um, for sure. So some examples of translaminar pesticides would be like spinazad. Spinazad is a translaminar pesticide. Interesting. Exactly. Oh, man. Yeah. I don't Um, think I'll... uh... And and translaminar (laughs) pesticides... present a very uh, specific problem to extractors that want to use trim to produce extracts. Because you can imagine if spinazad has been applied to a lot of plant tissue and that spinazad has penetrated the tissues and formed reservoirs of pesticides in the leaf tissue, well, that's going to be a really big problem for extracts and concentrates. Is it going to stay away from the actual flower portion as far as collection? It it depends on how it's applied wow. and when it's applied. There's a number of different things that go into that. Typically, it's assumed that the outer leaves, you know, have much, much, much higher concentrations than the actual, you know, formed bud of a of a cannabis plant. You know, the deep innards of of a cannabis inflorescence um, would have. This is one reason why trimming is important because if you're submitting to the lab um, untrimmed or barely trimmed flower. 
and you're using translaminar pesticides, you are at a higher risk of failing. Make note. And <laughs> and we have clients that um, sometimes are very nonchalant about trimming, and they say, oh, it's fine. Just go ahead and test it. It'll be fine. And it's like, will it be, though? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, right. you know, if the difference between, you know, your batch being acceptable for consumption and being able to be sold on the market is just the difference between, you know, trimming your butts tighter, not, I mean, that I don't can know. Be, yeah, and it's it seems like a, worth, a your, worthwhile endeavor. Mm -hmm. And plus trimming your buds increases your potency anyway, because you're removing excess material that makes aren't sense. cannabinoids. And makes sense. So there are multiple reasons to trim your buds better, <laughs> but yeah. translaminar pesticides are specifically a, a, a good reason. That's amazing. I um, didn't know that because I have used that mm -hmm. before and I don't think I'll, I haven't used it, you know, any, any recently. L let me ask you this since I've, since we're here in terms of the pesticides is, so the IPM that I have been using, which is working well, is um, right from the beginning, you usually do a once a week treat with uh, essential oils. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I don't know how safe that is. Um, and hopefully at least because I've used a lot of organics, mm -hmm. I've always used organic pesticides, try to use them at a minimum, but I do have some sort of program to yeah. try to keep that at a minimum. Um, but using essential oils, what's your thought on that? The one I use works extremely well for mites and mm -hmm. PM and stuff. It's about seven. It's about a mix of seven mm -hmm. oils, things like rosemary, lavender, stuff right. like that. But again, when you're combusting them and stuff, who, you know, is, do you think they're a little safer than organics or what's your feeling? Well, that's really tricky and um, in an interesting way touches on some stuff that goes way back to our conversations that we've had before about terpenes and about, um, you know, just as there's not a lot of information about uh, the safety of combusting and inhaling pesticides. There's also not a lot of data about the um, safety of heating and inhaling um, high concentrations of terpenes as as well. Right. And keep in mind that a lot of pesticides are terpenes, or a lot of terpenes are pesticides. Gotcha. Um, and terpenes uh, make up the bulk fractions of essential oils. Um, so there's <laughs> this commonality there. I'm not saying that all terpenes are pesticides or that all terpenes are as toxic as some pesticides are or anything like that, but it, it makes the conversation complicated. It does. Um, yeah. And there are other things to consider. Uh, so when you're applying essential oils, you have to keep in mind that in chemistry, um, opposites don't attract, likes attract. So oils love oils, waters like waters, water doesn't like oil. Right, right. Um, <laughs> so when you apply essential oils, you know, the components of those essential oils blend perfectly with trichomes or any oily part of the plant. Um, because of that, um, those compounds in the essential oils will linger for quite a while. Um, because they're blending in with the oil fractions of the plant and, and sticking around. Um, so, I, one, it depends on what's in your essential oils. Like I said, pyrethrins are terpenes. So, right, right. Um, not that pyrethrins are necessarily, um, you know, very dangerous, but they are something that we test for. They have the highest um, allowable limit of all the pesticides that we test for. Um, so their, you know, their safety profile is reflected in that regard, um, that it's harder to fail for that than anything else. But you have to keep that in mind that, you know, there could potentially be 
compounds and essential oils that could potentially be tested for, depending on how those essential oils were sourced, what plants they came from, and particularly um, if you trust the source, you know, were they industrially produced in another country somewhere, were they produced locally, you know, can you trust that there aren't any mystery added chemicals to them or anything like that? Um, so, so two things. One, yeah. I'm hearing that you're getting a potential change in your end product. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And uh, what's the quality of what's going in? So there could be other inputs in there, components in that essential oil that could be possibly triggering a right uh, it's, a fail. Right. It's wow. You know, that's kind of scary. Well, you know, to to put it. To bring it back down to earth, I, I wouldn't be too <laughs> okay. too worried about failing a pesticide test for using um, essential oils. But it's just stuff to be aware of. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's not cut and dry. Um, that's why, you know, generally I encourage folks to try to do some sort of, you know, informational only pesticide test if they're worried about that kind of thing. Um, so they can get some data feedback and know whether or not to trust what they're using. And, sure. Um, that sort of thing. Um but, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, I'm seeing the use of essential oils as pesticides uh, becoming more and more common, very common, actually, as folks are um, turning away from traditional um, pesticides or even OMRI-listed pesticides. And um, and so, you know, I listed uh, spinazad as a translaminar pesticide just to go over some other yeah. examples, um, just to have them out there. Yeah. Um, Abamectin is a pesticide yep. that a lot of folks are familiar with. That's also a translaminar okay. pesticide, as well as um, acephates, another one, uh, chlorfenopyr. Um, some examples of the contact pesticides, the more traditional ones that I talked about at first, would be things like bifenazate, bifenthrin, carbaryl, um, pyrethrins, too, are contact pesticides. Um, and Go no. ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask you. It just occurred to me on, uh, correct me if I don't say this right, but spinosad, spinosad? Yeah, I always say spinosad, but then I noticed okay. people were saying spinosad. So, so on that, <laughs> there's a powder form of that. Yeah, is that powder form going to act the same way as the liquid form when it comes to the translaminar? Is that how you say? Oh, the translaminar activity. Laminar, yeah, um, is because it's it's literally kind of like seven where you can dust it on, and it's just a powder, and that's it. Unless you get it wet, I assume, because once you get it wet, it probably solubilizes right yeah i'm not sure i know enough specifically about that scenario particularly okay. to comment one way or the other but you know i would say you know if yeah as soon as it gets wet definitely You're back right there anyway yeah. yeah um i'm not sure if um you know when it's on the leaf itself how that powder interacts with the cuticles of the leaves or anything i'm not entirely yeah. sure yeah okay yeah and um and then some common systemic pesticides that folks are using, um, azadiractin is systemic. Okay. Um, so that's an Azamax and several yeah. other. Yeah, uh, yeah I've used azadiractin before. And, it seems to be, when it comes to that neem, mm -hmm. um, it seems to be the most effective. Yeah, and there's there's not a lot of evidence out there that I'm aware of, and I invite Can you folks. pass using that? Um, I don't believe azadiractin is on the list, but before I put my foot in my mouth, let me <laughs> double check. Um, Hopefully it's not. I mean, I've used it before and it's very effective, especially for like spider mites and stuff. Yeah, um, I, I don't believe it is. Um, and I don't believe there's a lot of evidence indicating that it has any level of toxicity that is concerning. Um, but once again, the disclaimer, I'm not a toxicologist, so I can't 
make any claims as to whether or not it's toxic or non-toxic or safe to use, but it is a systemic pesticide, so it does last a long time in the plant. Uh, Mycobutanil is also a systemic fungicide. Um, and so that's a particular one, Mycobutanil, that we've seen um, a lot of folks um, struggling with as well because, once again, it's a fungicide. It doesn't fall into those classes that we ever had to test for before. And um, it, it just has been totally off of a lot of uh, people's radars. And because it's a systemic pesticide, you know, even if folks aren't applying it during flower, um, it's still uh, potentially making it, you know, to the final product. And some sort of concerning things about mycobutanil come with um, some of the research that's been done about um, what it converts into. It uh, potentially turns into several nasty byproducts when it gets heated that you don't want to inhale. Um, Imidacloprid is another systemic pesticide that we um, tend to see quite frequently. I can't remember what commercial product imidacloprid um, comes in, but if anyone listening wants to do that research and inform others about that, um, <laughs> sure. it is one that we yeah. see pretty frequently. Wow. Yeah. I, I can't believe that you're seeing uh, some of this stuff. I mean, <laughs> which which is even scary because I can't imagine what got into my body in the 90s. Right. Yeah, that's, really... that's sort of where my mind always goes with all of this is, all right, we're getting this feedback now, and we're seeing all of this. What were things like just, yeah, just, just five years ago, ago or even. ten years ago? Yeah. or Yeah, and what's still going on in the black market, you know, in other states across the country and across the world? Yeah, um, well, and even if the growers were trying, we can see the what happened with the regulations and, and, the, and the off-label. So back then, I'm sure it was no different. Right. So even if they were attempting to have something good, there's probably something off-label in there. So Exactly. <laughs> it's it's really a um, – I'm sure it's extremely frustrating for cultivators for that reason. It's like they want to do the right thing right. and they want to um, do as good a job as they can, but the cards ultimately at times get stacked against them anyway because of things like off-label pesticides and um, – you know, what I encourage folks to do when they're doing their own research to decide what's best to use is, you know, immediately, you know, come up with a list of everything you're considering using. And then... And your neighbors too, right? And your neighbor. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, runoff and air pollution is, sure, is real. especially in these big farms. I For mean, sure. And, and it, if you're outdoors, I mean, there's... Yeah, and if, they're, if your neighbors are using... Um, you know, uh, aer aerosolized um, pesticides. Right. Yeah, like uh, they got a food crop or something. Yeah, that um, that becomes a really big issue. Um, but I encourage folks to make a list of everything you're considering using and then just go online and find your, you know, whatever search engine you like to use and look up the MSDS for that product, the Material Safety yeah. Data Sheet. You'll find them for free online, readily available. Just search for the product name, and MSDS mm -hmm. or material safety data sheet and you'll find it and that will tell you what the primary active and listed active ingredients of the product are then you can take that information and what I recommend is uh, there's a really really good database online freely available um, just simply called the pesticide properties database and they have a companion to that the bio pesticide properties database um, for a lot of the organic stuff um, you can go on there, find the active ingredient that you're worried about. And um, this is a group out of the UK, but they've made this awesome database. I should reach out to them sometime and tell them how much I use it and love it because I nice. really do use it yeah. regularly. But um, you can go on there. They have, 
you know, listed out, like what's known about it as far as um, health concerns to humans, you know, what studies have been done, what have what hasn't been done. It tells you the mobility, tells you the persistence, and it tells you in technical language, and then it also tells you in a sort of simplified version, is it highly mobile or not? Um, so it's, you know, it's something that, you know, a layperson can use or, you know, a, a fairly sophisticated researcher could use mm-hmm. and, and get good information off of. And it also tells you how that active ingredient affects other organisms, which is extremely important um, when you're, you know, talking about trying to minimize the environmental impact of uh, not just cannabis cultivation, but cultivation in general. Um, because, you know, the going back to the, the spinazad example, um, it's extremely effective at what it does. It's so effective that it has a devastating effect on pollinators. Yeah, that's and, the other thing. And so, and something to consider too, because right. even if it might not hurt us, it's organic, blah, blah, blah. Right. Could be hurting the environment. Bees is a big one. Exactly. Flies. Um, bees, uh, flies, butterflies. Um, you know, these are things that if you're um, not a biologist or ecologist or a um, just a general enthusiast of nature, you, you don't think about these things too frequently and the important effect that these organisms have on just maintaining systems so that we can exist. Yeah. Um, and gosh, just to have food in general, pollinators are, you know, such a huge part of food production. Um, so spinazad, you know, specifically has very strong effects on pollinators. Yeah. I mean, most pesticides, I mean, you just have to think about what they are. You know, if they kill sure. um, pests on your plants, they probably kill insects and things in the that, soil yeah. um, as well as in water. Yeah. And the water, it's all, It. <laughs> I'm very passionate about all of these things just because of my background as an okay. educator, right. an environmental educator and everything. But you know, water organisms are a huge part of ensuring um, that our water systems uh, maintain a certain level of uh, cleanliness um, for us to drink from. But not even that, they also help maintain the environment of water so that other organisms can live in that water and contribute to an overall healthy water uh, ecosystem. If you start getting some of these pesticide compounds into runoff water and it's making it into creeks and streams and things, and um, water organism populations are affected, there starts to be a cascading effect that gets set into motion where the water gets less suitable for um, certain fish to live in, let's say, or certain insects to live in, which then perpetuates um, the problem. So then um, once those players come out of the ecosystem, then it gets even harder for other things to live. And the the whole chemistry and ecology of the water changes. You generally start to get less dissolved oxygen in the water, and so that means even less fish and things can live in it. You get less clarity. Um, it affects the temperature of the water, which affects what organisms can live in there. And so these are very subtle changes that don't happen all at once, but um, you know they're all connected to each other, and they all directly affect our ability to survive on the planet. Um, same with soil organisms. And if you ever want to get away from using pesticides, You've got to encourage healthy, um, uh, a healthy soil ecology, um, because uh, I mean, soil is very much a living thing, um, or you know, it's at least a home to a huge amount of um, diversity of life, and you know, all of that life encourages things like nutrient cycling and making sure that um, 
for instance, phosphorus in the soil is actually available to plants to take up and right. isn't in some form that the plants can't use. Right. Um, and that's all part of the living soil portion. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, these are all things that you have to keep in mind when you're trying to decide, you know, am I going to use pesticides or not? Okay. If I feel like I have to, or I need to pick, you know, a few to use just in case, what am I going to use? You know, all of these things have to be taken into account. And so I like that data, that um, pesticide properties database a lot, because it outlines a lot of that information that's not so um, anthropocentric, not so human centric. Um and um, for folks that are wanting to do, you know, sustainable or regenerative agriculture or just, you know, wanting to have a positive um, impact on the environment when they're cultivating, you've got to take that into consideration as well and understand that all living things are connected in ways that we don't directly see or even necessarily understand. And when we start to affect one side, we are inevitably affecting other sides. It just might take a while before we see those effects. Sure. Sure. Now, I mean, have we talked about that link to that, uh, to that database or that? We might have before a while back. Yeah. Um, I can give you a link to it to post on. That'd be great. I'd online. like to. Yeah. If you could send that, just emailed or something. Yeah. Be Cause great. The, the link itself is kind of weird and impossible to remember. Sure. Yeah. Um, but if you can get it somewhere where folks can find it, just click um, on it. it's just a, a really great sophisticated resource and you can actually buy. Well, uh, I can put that link on this episode. Yeah. That'd be so, perfect. Yeah. And you can actually buy print copies of this database too. So if you actually wanted to own a physical version of the database for your reference and everything. Um, you know, that's one way that the folks that nice. manage that database yeah. can make some money oh, and, nice. and keep yeah. doing it. So I encourage that too. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Sure. <clears throat> All right. Well, so I've kept you a while, but I think we should, you know, kind of finish now what it's the situation that cannabis growers are in, these farms are in, can you go over, what are your suggestions for, for these folks that are up against this? What, what should they do to get their business in line? And Sure. I mean... Um, just adjust <clears throat> to the new rules, I guess. Yeah. Um, there are a variety of things that cannabis businesses can do to try to best position themselves so that cannabis testing itself doesn't become, you know, a big bottleneck um, to their business. And that's something, you know, that none of the labs want. And so first of all, I think it's important for everyone in the industry to understand everyone else's plight and that we're yeah. all going through big changes right. at the same time. Sure. And, and so there's, there's a bit of a, a set of growing pains or you could even call them birthing pains that we're kind of having to go through <laughs> more appropriate. Yeah. To, to figure this all out. And so, you know, keep in mind that labs are now, you know, we answer to multiple uh, regulating entities simultaneously. So it's, we don't have a lot of wiggle room on much and, um, you know, just as say, for instance, OLCC clients are worried about triggering audits in their seed to sale tracking system and all of that, you know, we have certain backends that we have to keep up with um, to ensure that we're compliant to our accreditation standards and, and all of that. And, you know, ultimately what that means is that things are, you know, taking a little longer and that um, there's a lot more writing on everything that everyone's doing now. So I encourage a little bit of empathy <laughs> yeah, yeah, <I laughs> on, on all levels um, <laughs> with that. But that being said, um, I think there's a lot that uh, folks can do to try to um, change up their business practices a little bit to best position themselves going forward. Um, one of the biggest things is, um, in general, the amount of time it takes to turn around results has extended. 
Um, it always extends during peak season. We always see, you know, very significant changes to turnaround times during the months of October, November, December. But I think this trend is, it's going to get a little better, but it's going to continue going forward. I mean, I think only a third of OLCC licenses have even been um, given out yet. So there are a lot more players that are going to be entering this whole <laughs> this whole thing. Um, so um, don't, I... I encourage producers to no longer expect short turnaround times um, and try to plan at least a month out. Um, It's best to try to get on a testing schedule, you know, try to get on a regularly schedule where where you're getting, you know, a few batches or so tested every week or so, so that once you get through that first hump uh, delay of getting results, then you're in a regular stream of getting results every week or so. Sure, and I'm sure there's um, a simple formula you can probably sit down and run and just say, hey, I need this much coming in weekly. If right. I do this and I do that, I can... Right. Um, so I think that's a big thing is just planning ahead and realizing that the testing environment that we're in now is just so, so very different than it was before October. Yeah. And it's it's moving more and more towards what's pretty typical of other industries that perform similar work. And it doesn't necessarily... Um, make anyone feel any better to point this out. But in other industries that do similar work to what cannabis testing labs are having to do, you know, it's not unusual for that type of work to take a month or more um, to do. Um, So, you know, just try to plan that far ahead so that if, you know, things do happen, let's say a lab all of a sudden, because now we could go, we could have random audits that could happen at any time and that can affect, you know, whether or not we're able to turn results around quickly or not. Um, On top of that, you know, if an instrument goes down, there are, um, you know, certain protocols we have to go through before Mm -hmm. we can put that instrument online again and that takes time. And so there are always unforeseen things that can happen. And so you have to build that into your plans and sort of assume the worst case scenario. So that you don't, you know, set yourself up for, you know, those sorts of bottlenecks. So I think that's a, a big thing, um, you know, for extractors and infused product makers. I think it's, you know, very, very important to um, focus on your documented procedures and processes and get them really dialed in, um, you know, get things in writing so that you can train people to do the same thing over and over and over again reliably and, um, you know, if you're thinking about springing for a control study, you know, try to do your best to ensure that you're not going to be wasting money on that study. Have a pretty high internal confidence, you know, that you're going to come out on the other side successful. And if you're worried that you won't, um, contact, you know, your nearest lab that you trust and ask them what you can do to establish that confidence in yourself before you pull the trigger on, you know, getting such a large study done. Um, Because that's that's one thing I I really hate to see is when folks rush to try to, you know, get some of this work done and then they spend a lot of money and resources just to not quite make it to the finish line. Yeah. um, When a little preparation would have prevented that. Um, It's important for folks to realize that, you know, to a certain extent, um, definitely um, our lab feels this way you know, we want to be resources um, to businesses as much as we can, not just providing testing, but, you know, sitting down with folks and trying to iron some of this stuff out. It's like, okay, you know, what are your, 
you know, your ongoing testing needs and how are things rolling for you right now? And how can we both sort of meet in the middle and try to figure this out so that it's working best for you and that you're getting the most value out of the services we're providing you? Um, so planning ahead, you know, getting processes, you know, documented and in line and sticking to them um, is a, a big part. As far as making edibles and extracts and whatnot, since there is this sort of ongoing demonstration of homogeneity, you know, make sure you're mixing things well. Yeah, um, That's tricky with especially um, extract and concentrate production, because there are certain products that you make where you specifically do not want to mix it. I was uh, going to say <laughs> that. I've had some experience doing that, and, you know, it does change it if you it does. do. It does. It very you know, much does. Yeah. And you have to, um, you know, work with a lab and figure out, you know, what do those upper and lower um, allowable limits look like in a practical sense, you know? what is plus or minus 5% mm. so that as a producer or a processor, you know, you have very specific numbers in mind. If you're like, okay, as long as we're within this variance, we're fine. Or as in the sense of um, hitting concentration limits. Yeah. And as far as demonstrating homogeneity, you know, figure out what does 30% relative standard deviation look like on a typical batch of, you know, things that are averaging between 60 and 75 or 80% THC. What does 20% RPD, which is relative percent difference, what does that look like? What does that mean in a practical sense? Because I think that's a, a big point that folks are struggling with is they read the rules, their eyes glaze over when they read statistics. I don't blame them. <laughs> Mine kind of do too. And, um, and they're like, okay. And then they just you know, push forward mm -hmm. and hope for the best. Yeah. Um, but you, know, you don't have to operate on that level of um, you know, uh, lack of understanding. Like we can we can give you some projected ideas of what those statistics actually mean in a practical sense so that it adds value to your production processes so that you have less concern about failing for potency or failing a control study, or, you know, that sort of thing. And so I just encourage folks to, you know, try to better embrace their relationships with the labs so that they can get their businesses structured um, in more in line with how things are now. Um, basically, um, get rid of all of your notions of what cannabis testing was prior, um, because it's just changed so much. Uh, you know, well, I mean, okay. Let, real quickly. What? Okay. So these are temporary changes. The, Dece that mean, the, the December 2nd one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Does that mean they're going back to the October 1st? That's Is a, that the default? That's a lovely question. Okay. Um, I, I didn't think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have no what idea. What does temporary mean? Exactly. <laughs> to the new set of temporary rules? So that's another thing to keep in mind is that <laughs> we we know as much as you do, they essentially. They want to keep the door open, you know. You know, we understand what the new rules mean in the sense of what we have to do on our technical side of things, but as far as interpretations and what comes next and, yeah. you know, what's the big picture, it, it's really up in the air. And, and honestly, at least I know from our experience, like we don't, we don't get any like serious insider scoops on what's going I on. See. And it, a lot of times it turns out our clients know more than we do about upcoming testing rule changes, which is kind of <laughs> strange, but, um, and labs uh, for whatever reason, um, they get consulted after the rules change, not before. And uh, so, do you even get a notice in the mail? Um, <laughs> if we're <Yeah>. lucky. <laughs> and so, so you know, keep that in mind that labs 
you know, while we perform regulatory regulatory compliant services, you know, we're not agents of the state and we're okay. not interpreters of the rules. So we don't have all of the answers for all of this stuff. And, you know, it's going to take ongoing conversations with the state um, and between the producers and the labs to try to figure out what all this means. And we probably have slightly different interpretations um, of certain things potentially. And so we have to work all of that out. And, um, you know, so I encourage folks, you know, don't get too mad at your lab if they can't answer a lot of questions about what the rules yeah. mean. Um, well, because it, it's it's really hard to answer questions yeah. like that because um, we're trying to get clarification ourselves. Right, right, right. And, and it's probably... I can see how it'd be hard for the public to not want to turn to you guys and and know you you know you guys have that knowledge. Right. It seems like a logical way to to go yeah, about no, it. But it, but it, I see it's that it's totally totally understandable yeah. and we and we do try to help as much sure. as we can and offer as much information, you know, as we reliably can. Um but then, you know, it's a fine it's line. Tough, it's yeah. a fine line between you know, explaining what has changed and sort of taking the next you know, what I would say would be sort of an irresponsible step of trying to say what that means. You know, there's a difference between reading the text and recognizing what's changed versus interpreting that text and trying to get at what the point of the text is. And and so I, I don't think it's I don't think it would be very responsible for labs to make that leap of interpretation for clients. Um, and so you know, we'll see how things change. I guarantee they'll change probably sooner than May. Um, you know, once the legislature starts up again, I wouldn't be surprised if changes came down again in February or so, like oh, they wow. did last year. Okay. Um, there were it's coming up then. Yeah. You know, typically you see rule changes in, you know, February, March area, the June area, October area, and December area. I so, see. Um, those are sort of the, the peak months to, to keep in mind as far as announcements to, to changes. And, um, you know, other than that, you know, recognize that a lot of labs do offer, you know, consulting to clients to, you know, try to, to work through um, at least uh, what we can work through as far as logistical things, like I said, trying to better organize business practices to avoid cannabis testing becoming a bottleneck and, and how to, you know, get the most value out of lab testing services. And so just, you know, ask around, ask your labs, you know, if they're willing to sit down with you for, you know, at least 15 minutes or so and just talk about, you know, you know, here's what I'm doing. What could I do differently so that this isn't a problem again or, you know, that sort of thing. And, um, another thing we didn't touch on too much, but, you know, now that random sampling is happening and samples are being taken from all over a batch and combined into one sample, generally folks are noticing that potency numbers are dropping a little bit on average. Um, and that's okay. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's kind of, um, an unfortunate thing that lab testing started out in such a way that, um, the industry kind of got accustomed to um, exaggeratedly high um, potency results for cannabis materials, um, not understanding that um, those results were specific to, you know, premium samples from a batch and not representative of a batch as a whole. Um, and so it's there will be a little bit of um, a time period where the whole industry kind of has to adjust to the new norms in the ways of, um, in the sense of, you know, 
you know, what is a high THC potency when we're used to seeing a lot of high 20s and now we're seeing a lot of high teens, you know, or low 20s, you know, trying to figure out how to make make sense of that. Um, there's going to be some uh, patience and understanding that comes into that too because, you know, for better or worse, um, cultivators deal with the fact that, you know, their ability to sell product um, hinges a lot of times on the THC number. And so yeah. they're concerned because the THC numbers are coming down a little bit and yeah. they're wondering, how am I going to sell product? And that's a, that's a bigger industry issue that, um, you know, is going to involve some conversations and education. Um, it would help to, re- I mean, board. seems like a lot of people do go after that number, but I've had so much good flour that is as yeah. low as 13, 12, 15%. Yeah. Fat I mean, that's like 9%. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you'll get those one strains like, uh, what is it? Um, Pennywise and stuff like that, where you got a real low, like you said, 9% THC and you maybe have a high 20, 25. I don't know how high they get, but um, you might get some high CBD strain right. like that. And, and it's got real do- low THC, but you still, I still feel like I'm completely right. And there's so many <gasps> synergistic effects and so many complexities right. with the pharmacodynamics of cannabinoids and terpenes and flavonoids and other compounds. Like, uh, you know, <laughs> we haven't on another show, we can talk about this, but, <laughs> you know, going beyond the typical cannabinoids, there are things like cannabinoid esters and cannabinoid ketone products and all of these other chemicals that are not on people's radars yet that yeah. are influencing you know, the experience that you get from these products. And it's just about so much more Mm -hmm. than that THC value. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, it's going to take time for that adjustment to, to happen. And well, it's almost like you need to have, and and in a really fun, positive way is have an open mind and just Mm -hmm. try it all or try it as you go, because uh, you never know what you're going to find, what the kind of relief you'll get. I mean, mean, it's, it's really not a good thing to just go after a high number. Yeah. And, um, in my, uh, courses that I teach, you know, an inevitable question that I get almost every class is, well, which strain is best for X, Y, Z condition. And, um, it's totally applicable here. It's like, you know, one, that's just sort of the wrong attitude in general to have for different reasons. Um, besides the fact that the phytochemical polymorphism and the fact that you can grow the same strain in the same grow environment and give them slightly different drying conditions and end up with different chemotypes. Right. right exactly. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's so much going on that, you know, the best you can do to find what's quote unquote best is take note of every sensory experience you have with each product that you encounter, smell it, um, you know, feel it, taste it, um, note what colors are present because the colors indicate certain things about the chemistry. And I encourage folks to keep an experience journal about this stuff. Um, I'm working on uh, publishing early next year a a little journal specifically for this purpose, um, a little cannabis experience journal so the folks can just, you know, every time they consume something, just document as much information as you can. Um, Rate, you know, if you're in pain, what's your typical pain score on one to 10 before and after? And, you know, describe your mood before and after and describe other nuances about the experience. And and then over time, you might notice patterns, you know, that go so far beyond THC. You'll be like, oh, yeah. So I've noticed that, you know, um, high THC strains tend to work for X, Y or Z condition, but only when it smells this certain way and has this certain color. Or you might notice that, you know, um, 
oh, it turns out that really the only thing that helps me is a one-to-one THC-CBD ratio or a one-to-four THC-CBD ratio, and it tends to work extra well when it smells like fuel or like fruit or something, you know? (laughs) Sure. Um, And those are are really important things to note because, you know, you don't have to understand all of the complexities of the biochemistry of the cannabis plant to, you know, get this meaningful information. You just need to start writing it down and paying attention uh, to all of your senses and and really getting in tune to to what you're consuming and noticing you know the little effects and getting past strain names and getting past everything really and just well, yeah. and just getting more into the pure experience of yeah. the thing yeah. and documenting it and then going back and trying to look at what patterns you notice because it's really hard to figure that kind of stuff out in the moment or just you know remember it and also, it gives you something that you can then, if you're a patient, you can then take that to a medical doctor or something, and they can review, and they might notice patterns that you didn't see. And mm-hmm. um, and so that's the best advice I give to people, you know, forget the THC number, yeah. forget the strain name, yeah. Yeah. forget all of that, figure out the cannabinoid ratios, note the smells, note the colors, note everything you can. If there are terpene results, great. Um, I think when we talked about terpenes, I talked about how... Um, you know, don't put too much stock in terpene results for flowers because the terpenes are always changing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So it's and it's really more important. You know, what what do you actually smell? Experience, yeah. And and yeah, and note the cannabinoid ratios and everything, and and go from there. And I think you'll have much more success in the long term, and you'll have a much more mature and sophisticated um, uh, reality about it all. Um, more like a wine tasting, if you yes, will, because you yes. don't look. You don't look at a bottle of wine and and you're going to taste it and test it and everything and say, oh, it's got, you know, twenty percent <laughs> alcohol. Right. Sweet. This is a good wine. I, no, I, I, you know, you do what you said. You, whoa, you pour it and you, yep. you know, smell it and experience it and change exactly. the temperature of it. And, and and you know, wine connoisseurs get made fun of <laughs> for that kind of stuff, right. but it's real, legitimate. Yeah. And and there are actual scientific instruments that um, go into this. I mean, you can get sophisticated sniffers to put on your nose <laughs> that hook up to sure. a gas chromatograph that will oh, nice. that will sync up with so you have some kind of information to yeah you sit there and you smell mm-hmm. everything as it's being analyzed oh, by a gas chromatograph wow, that's cool and then you sit there Talk and you, di- you dictate what you're experiencing it records it it's synced up oh. in time and this is how you get really detailed information yeah. about like the um aromatic uh, components of wines and and beer nice. so uh, hops and different things yeah. like that usually go through some process like that um and so it's 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 real it's not made up and it, despite how you know wine connoisseurs get made fun of for you know acting that way and even cannabis connoisseurs you know go through the same the same deal when they want to sit there and smell and make comments about everything you know a lot of folks are like what's the big deal it's all weed and it's like well no there are all these subtle differences and and ultimately they add up to how it affects me and and how you know it influences my final experience and so it is important especially if you're a patient and you're really trying to get at some answer um got to note all of that otherwise you're missing a huge part of the picture um all for the sake of focusing on one tiny puzzle piece yeah yeah and the variety that cannabis offers in terms of all those profiles is it just only lends itself for you to do that right i mean because there's so much variety Mm -hmm. um it's 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 too bad when someone who has an experienced eye that will look at five different you know buds and and they all look green Right. Yeah. yeah. It's like, well, eh. wow. There's looks so like weed. <laughs> yeah. Smells like weed. Looks like weed. <laughs> so. Must be weed. That's, <laughs> that's, 
that's a very common uh, perspective. All right. So, well, I've kept you on quite a bit today, but all that information was awesome. You had a lot of good points and, uh, you know, a lot of good uh, advice, too. Yeah, so. thanks. I, I appreciate you having me on again. Um, you know, I encourage folks, if you know, if you have questions about any of the stuff, yep. you know, feel free to, you know, shoot well, us. let's plug your stuff. Shoot so. us emails. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so right now we're a little quiet just because we're in this peak harvest season. So education-wise, there's not a lot going on. But I am in the process of uh, coordinating our 2017 education schedule. So that being said, mm-hmm. if um, I am on the market for uh, looking for guest speakers... So okay. if anyone out there that's listening um, would like to participate in um, one of our monthly seminars next mm-hmm. month, um, I am actively uh, looking You're for starting folks next month? Are, not next month. Uh, sorry, next year. Oh, Ooh. gosh. I was like, I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would be too. Yeah. yeah I, uh... no, um, next year. Okay. <laughs> and so they'll probably, they typically start around March um, and go till October or so. So if anyone's interested in, in getting in on that, um, I'm definitely uh, looking for folks. I... While I love giving the seminars, I'd love to provide some more variety to the folks that come every year so they don't have to look at my face every time uh, <laughs> and get some other some other folks up there um, sharing, you know, some good information. Because there are so many people in this area that are doing a lot of really interesting, really cool work that have a lot of information to share. And so I, I really want to try to connect with, um, with those people and... Um, we'll have announcements about um, our concepts of cannabis science classes um, probably in January. We'll announce um, what months we'll be holding those and when to register and everything like that. Um, beginning of next year, like I said, I plan on um, pushing out some um, different publications that I'm excited about that I can make available to people soon. A lot of people ask me how to get their hands on the textbook that we use in our concepts of cannabis science classes. And so I'm getting that all finalized and hopefully we'll have it officially published at the beginning of next year. Is that going to um, be a free publication or are you going to? No, try? it'll, it'll be, you know, um, no, something that folks no. will have to purchase. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's a well over 200 page I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. textbook. Yeah. Um, but I'll try to make it reasonable. Um, and it'll, it'll be on Amazon and, and all of that good stuff. And like I said, this, we'll find used copies. Yeah. No. <laughs> we'll find the India version. <laughs> I, hey, if you can't go for it. <laughs> I do it. <laughs> you know, if I can find used books, that's how I that's do how it. I got through college. Yep, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, and that, uh, you know, cannabis journal, you know, folks can make their own journals, but if they are, you know, wanting a template, you know, I'll be pushing that nice. out beginning yeah. next year too to make it available. That one will be extremely cheap um, and accessible for folks. It'll probably be, you know, like a dollar or two just so that people, you know, if that's something they want, that they can easily get it. Um, and, uh yeah, just keep your eyes peeled. Check the Kinevir Research website for updates on the educational stuff. That's um, KinevirResearch.com. KinevirResearch.com. Um, we're Research on Instagram, right? Yep, at yep. Kinevir Research mm-hmm. on Instagram, at Kinevir Research uh, on Twitter and Facebook. Um, and if you, anyone listening has ideas on um, things that they would like to hear um, covered in future seminars or even on the show or something, I encourage them to... Um, to either reach out to either one of us yeah, and, and let us know because I definitely want our content to be as valuable as possible to folks and, um, you know, try to hit on things that, you know, people really are wanting to understand more uh, yeah, and absolutely. learn about. So, and we'll definitely pass that on if they send it to us yeah. so you can answer them in the best way possible. Definitely. Um, and that's, I think that's about all the plugs I 
have so far. Okay. Well, you know, we had a good time last year with all that education that you had, all the monthly seminars. That was a great time. I, and, I love it. It's one yeah. of the things I look forward to the most uh, once it's going every month. Um, it's uh, a lot it's of valuable information. Really and, yeah. And I always get just really good questions, too, that make me go back and think. And learn. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's what, you know, teaching and learning is all about. It's not a one way street. Um, and I, I love pushback from folks. I can handle a good argument. So um, I, you know, it just provides opportunities uh, to learn more and share more information. So, yeah, I, I love it so much. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you, Jason. We appreciate it. And we look forward to the future. Probably won't do an interview till next year. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, we'll, you know, obviously keep catching up with you and keep on top of these regulation changes. Like you said, this is not going to be the last one. So we'll keep that information out there and yeah. and then we'll we'll you know talk about the upcoming education and stuff. Sure. Yeah. And um, I want to do another shout out to our friends in Slovenia and Germany at ICANA, uh, International Institute for Cannabinoids. And um, what can you explain to the listeners exactly what they do there? Sure. Um, we we may have mentioned it before, but let's go over it again because these guys and again, shout out to them. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of active listening going mm-hmm. over there. And we see we're seeing growth over there, and we we really appreciate it. Um, but yeah, th- that whole that whole area is really getting a lot of. Yeah, um, ICANA specifically is um, a group of uh, primarily a group of researchers and clinicians that have come together, recognizing that there's an incredible need for high quality, sophisticated cannabis and cannabinoid education um, worldwide, but specifically in Eastern Europe and, you know, the areas, you know, where they're located. Yeah. Um, especially because of all the hemp farming going on there. Okay. And now medical cannabis is is getting approved in different places. Um, Isn't Germany on that list? Um, I believe so. And Slovenia as well okay. has um, Wanted to make just sure that. Uh, recently made provisions nice. for medical cannabis. And, um, and so this group of researchers got together, you know, they're, they run this institute on in their free time, which is incredible to me. Um, you know, these are uh, doctors and, um, you know, microbiologists and folks that have very busy lives that are dedicating significant portions of their time and energy to just try to get good information out there. And um, and so we, we partner with them on um, a couple of different levels, um, primarily on an education level, um, I've taught several of them in my classes um, through um, online offerings and have gotten to know them pretty well and engaged in several other products. And we act as sort of mentors to one another on different things as they come up. And um, ultimately, we sort of have the shared goal of just trying to get high quality information to the public as well as healthcare professionals. That's a big aim is trying to get the... Um, you know, the cannabis competency of doctors and nurses um, up to speed on this stuff so that they can help patients um, as effectively as possible. And, you know, what's what's incredible, it, there was a doctor from um, ICANA that went through my class and he shared um, some of the work that he's done with um, patients with a, a number of different diseases. And, you know, these patients on their own would uh, try different cannabinoid treatments and some of the progress that he's seen in untreatable conditions. Um, I mean, it was enough to bring tears to your eyes. Some of these stories, you know, that he's sharing and, you know, that's the perspective they're coming from is that, you know, they have seen how important 
this is um, to people that have no options um, on the patient side, but then how important it is for healthcare workers to understand this stuff so they can provide high levels of service and for consumers to understand this stuff so that they um, know, you know, how to make sense of, you know, everything that they're hearing about cannabis and, and all of that. And, um, and so, yeah, anyone listening in, in, um, in Europe, check out ICANA. They've, they've got a, um, an awesome website that they keep updated with the events that they're doing. They do um, seminars fairly regularly, and um, we're working on trying to figure out ways in which they can actually launch um, some of my educational material out there as well and um, sort of get some translations going on and that sort of thing. Um, and so that's really exciting work. Um, we're always scheming all kinds of ideas on, yeah, that's great. on trying to, to provide more educational opportunities to folks. Um, so I, I've been really, really impressed with, with what they're doing out there. That's really cool. And you know, what's nice is in this day and age, you know, me and you can sit here in, in a room with a closed door <laughs> and record this. And then, you know, in the next couple of days, this is going to be in Germany. Yeah. And so we're, we're just essentially next door neighbors. And it's great that, that you guys are collaborating like that. I think that's awesome. And I hope that, I hope that that kind of momentum continues over there. I agree. And I I think it will, um, everything that I've seen and everyone that I've talked to, um, you know, there's just so much excitement about the, um, the opportunities that are presenting themselves, um, to finally step out and talk about this stuff, which is sort of the first step is just feeling comfortable enough to share opinions and share ideas about this topic, but then going forward and, you know, actually, um, you know, providing value to people's lives that, you know, that are using this stuff or are working with people that are using cannabis. Um, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's given my work a lot of meaning just, um, you know, in the education stuff and particularly the work that I've, that I've done with them, you know, you see some very serious, um, direct payoffs from, you know, just emotionally, um, in how it affects people and how it, how it affects their understanding and, you know, just the, what we talked about, about the journal, you know, that's something that uh, we harp on a lot and you just, you see it in folks that you're working with in a classroom or online or whatever, you know, the sparks that start happening and how everything starts to sort of fall in line. And ultimately, you know, knowledge is power. And as people get more educated, they realize they have a lot more control <clears throat> over their, um, their lives and, and what they're doing than they previously thought. Um, so it gets into some, some pretty heavy stuff that I, um, I very much enjoy. Well, and one thing about it, the, you know, cannabis is a worldwide, I don't want to say issue, but it's a worldwide, um, subject or whatever it's ubiquitous and pervasive yeah and it's uh this may be a delusion of grandeur but it could be one of those uh, social issues that could in a positive way unite a lot of the world mm-hmm. because we're all going through this one way or another whether yeah. it's don't legalize it or legalize mm-hmm. it or decriminalize it or whatever but the positivity that's coming out of it mm-hmm. and that momentum and the positive side that could really unite a oh, lot yeah. of countries under this issue seeing how people from such varied backgrounds are able to come together to talk about you know this common subject you know that would never have met in each other otherwise or never would have shared these ideas otherwise and not only that but the level of compromise required to make all of this happen you know folks that have very different ideas um, than each other you know, being able to come together and discuss a highly controversial topic with the intention of, you know, 
trying to to make something happen or you know get some movement and and trying to recognize both both sides and um you know it's it's incredible to watch it's a bumpy ride um it's not all pretty yeah um, right but as um, is any change or reform exactly or yeah and that's life yeah. but um it's it's very incredible to watch and be a part of and you know and it's not unique to cannabis but because cannabis is so ubiquitous and pervasive right. it yeah it definitely puts the spotlight on on those issues and what's possible you know when we can you know feel comfortable enough to come together and and talk and discuss and try to reserve you know judgment and and that sort of thing um so yeah it's it's we're all a part of it, and it's really yeah. exciting. Yeah. Man, this might be our best episode we've done together. It might be. I'm, <laughs> I'm feeling it. I think we're getting better. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I appreciate it, and so I think we can just leave with that. I think the main theme of – if we can get anything across today, though, on mm-hmm. this theme is that get your trusted lab, mm-hmm. sit down with them, make a plan. Yeah, make a plan. And then make them your ally instead of the – you know. Right. Realize that, you know – yeah, labs. We wanna we wanna work with you and and. But that's gonna take in this time in in Oregon. It's gonna take some some it's, discussion. It's yes, some plans. It's gonna take some some plans, and it's gonna take a little while before things settle. And even when they settle, they'll change again. <laughs> and you know, which is why you got to work closely with your lab. That's, <laughs> that's right. Um, so yeah, and um, you know, as far as Kinevir and the whole Evio Labs, uh, you know, group is concerned, you know. We will do our best to to be a resource uh, to as many people as possible. And whether or not we actually provide you with testing services, you know, we're happy to just have a conversation with you and try to figure some of this stuff out as best as we can. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So that's it. Happy holidays. We appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Happy holidays to everybody. I hope you get through them okay. Yeah. (laughs) We'll see you on the flip side. uh, Good old 2017. (laughs) Yeah, it's coming quick too. Uh, We appreciate it, Jason. Thank you. Yep, thank you.